Good day, ladies and gentlemen. The stars have aligned. Don't worry, I'm not engaging in any new age astrology, whatever it's called. It's a saying, okay? The tea leaves, whatever. And I'm actually able to go live. I haven't been able to go live in a long time. Crazy house with lots of kids, but my kids are out with my wife, so I've got the house to myself. So I thought that I would go live today. Uh, I want to talk to you about two things that have come up in the news, in the news in the church. One is an insane sacrilegious so-called chicken dance mass that took place in Germany. And the other is a demand by over 10,000 people to have St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York reconsecrated exercise, essentially because of what recently took place um, what recently took place there, which we're going to talk about. And I just want to make sure that I can see everybody's comments here, because when I'm done that, uh, I would like to do some Q&A. Um, so if you are watching and you want to put a comment in, just do that, and I'll try to get to that when we're done the uh, meat of the show today. So if you're just joining me now, in Germany, there was a chicken dance mass, so-called, and we're going to show footage of that. And then we're going to show footage of that crazy trans funeral that took place under Cardinal Dolan's watch in New York. And we're going to read something that shows that there is demand for about 10,000 people, demand of about 10,000 people to have the church reconsecrated after what has taken place. And uh, okay, so let's get to the first thing. Here is a video of the chicken dance mass, if you can call it that. And uh, let's just take a quick watch. All right, that's enough of that. So if you thought that that might be a Catholic church, you're correct. You could see the priest in the background um, dancing along with the girl altar boys and handing out Holy Communion was a lay woman in a parka while some basically uh, clown on stage danced to the chicken dance. For those just joining now, I'll just show it one more time. Uh, in case you did miss it, you can see here there is a chicken dance going on in a Catholic church in Germany during Mass. So, okay, it's been a really long time since I was at the Novus Ordo, and admittedly, I never did see anything as egregious as that. Um, but did you catch there that the Eucharistic ministress, ministrix, whatever you'd say of it, did you check how she was uh, giving the little child a blessing? Did you ever find that that was so strange? I never understood how in the Novus Ordo you could, as a lay person, first of all, be distributing Holy Communion. That's crazy. Um, but also you could be giving people blessings. Lay people can't give blessings. So I don't really know how that works. 
Well, I just want to tell you before we get into our next story, we're going to show what's been going on in New York. Before we do that, I want to uh, dem- I want to show you or talk to you about something where I can guarantee you there will be no chicken dance masses. I'm heading to Italy this fall with Father Albert Calio. It is a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage opportunity. Families are welcome. People have asked, can we have families? Yes. Um, I wouldn't recommend really, really small children. I'm not bringing my really small children, and most of my children are under eight years old, so I'm not going to bring them this time because it might be hard to keep up. But people have asked if they can bring some kids. Yeah, for sure. Go for it. And uh, here's a quick promo for the trip. All the trouble in Rome, it is easy to forget about one unshakable fact. Our church is the Roman Catholic Church, and Rome is the Eternal City. What a perfect time to go on a pilgrimage to the Eternal City and the other monumental sites of Catholic heritage in beautiful Italy. Join Father Albert Calio and me this November as we tour through the shrines of Italy and the Amalfi Coast as we attend daily Mass in the Old Rite in the footsteps of St. Peter and St. Francis. Click the link in the description to register for this once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to discover the heart of the Catholic faith in the heart of the old Roman Empire. Click the link in the description if you're interested in, interested in that or visit kennedyhall.ca slash Italy, kennedyhall.ca slash Italy. If you're just joining us, we're talking about how in Germany there was a mass, they call it a mass, maybe it was valid, maybe it wasn't, wherein there was a chicken dance being performed and there was a clown on stage leading everybody in the chicken dance while they received Holy Communion. Now, obviously, it's never okay to have a chicken dance in a holy place like that. I mean, obviously, these are pretty basic truths. But while receiving Holy Communion just adds a little extra oomph to the sacrilege and heresy. And you know what's amazing? There are people out there who will tell you that if your only option on Sunday to attend Mass is to go to the Society of St. Pius X or to go to that Mass, they will tell you that you must go to that Mass. And don't pretend those of you who are watching and would say that you wouldn't say that, because you would because you have a cult-like understanding of obedience that turns you into a cult member that follows someone like Muhammad rather than Jesus Christ. And there's a book here called Bound by Truth. It's written by Dr. Kwasniewski about two-thirds of the way through. And in here, he has a whole chapter on Sunday obligation in a time of liturgical crisis. Basically, if there is no legitimate mass, legitimate and and reverent mass available for you on Sunday, can you go to, uh, or can you stay home and not have to go and still fulfill the commandments of, of Sunday obligation? Well, he points out and also, these, uh, the wisdom of this book is available on his Substack. He wrote a series of articles, which I think was the basis for this chapter. You can go subscribe there. It's for paid subscribers. I'm a paid subscriber of Dr. K. I think it's one of the best things to read out there that you can find. I would go and I recommend sign up for eight bucks a month, whatever it is, and become a subscriber. Point being, it was always understood before the council and theological manuals and catechisms and so forth, that if there was any risk for yourself spiritually or another, so risk of spiritual harm to yourself or another, the obligation itself did not bind. And this is how obligations work. The obligations to attend Mass, they are based in reality, they're based in reason, and they are for the purpose of what? They're for the purpose of sanctifying the Lord's Day. So if you're ever in a position where there's an obligation and you can't sanctify the Lord's Day by following that, then just because you're following a positive law of the church does not mean you're actually honoring God by doing so. If you know there's going to be sacrilege, Protestant spirit, and so on and so forth, you're not required to submit yourself to that, and especially your children. So please, everybody, check out Dr. K's book. You can find this from Angelical Press, Bound by Truth, recent book. It's amazing. I'm reading through it. It's lovely. It's wonderful. Check that out. Okay, so the next story that I wanted to talk about quick here, I'm going to share my screen, and we're going to look at an article here from LifeSite News. And it's called Over 10,000 Urge Cardinal Dolan to Exercise St. Patrick's Cathedral After Sacrilegious Trans Funeral. 
I talked about this yesterday on my on my channel. You can find the video there. And uh, we'll read through some of it, and I'll show you some footage. Within one day, over 9,000 people signed a petition urging Cardinal Timothy Dolan to exercise St. Patrick's Cathedral after a blasphemous funeral of an atheist transgender activist was held in the iconic church last week. Signatures on the petition have now passed 10,000. Mark, LifeSite News launched the petition after St. Patrick's Cathedral hosted a scandalous and sacrilegious funeral for the atheist LGBT activist Cecilia Gentili, a man who falsely believed he is a woman, which has sparked outrage among faithful Catholics. In an apparent blasphemous reference to the true St. Cecilia, a virgin who was martyred for refusing to renounce the Catholic faith, Gentili, a former prostitute, was eulogized as this whore, the great whore St. Cecilia, mother of all whores, at uh, his funeral service, which New York Times, with the New York Times celebrating the funeral as an event with no likely precedent in Catholic history. We're going to watch a quick uh, scene of this here. Viewer discretion is advised, um, and there is some in Spanish as well. Hoy te decimos hasta pronto. Danos fuerza y coraje para. I'll start at the, sorry, I'll start at the beginning. That no one can say you cannot do it. Esta puta, esta gran puta. So if you don't speak Spanish, esta puta, esta gran puta, I'm sorry for saying those words. This whore, this great whore is what he said. And they're all cheering. Look at the church, it's full. Cheer on Naputa. Esta puta, esta gran puta, la Santa Cecilia, la madre de todas las putas, hoy te decimos hasta pronto. Did you catch that blasphemy about the Blessed Virgin Mary? Esta madre de todas las putas. Sorry. It said, Esta madre de todas las putas, this mother of all of the whores, of the prostitutes, this is what is going on in a Catholic church in New York. This is what is happening in your Catholic church. And Cardinal Dolan knew this was happening. Let's continue watching. Danos fuerza y coraje para continuar tu legado, hacer frente a los retos, seguir firmes por los que sabemos que merecemos amor, igualdad y los mismos derechos y una vida digna. This whore. This great whore. Saint Cecilia. Mother of all whores. There's a priest sitting there. Now, I'm not going to continue because I don't want to scandalize people too much, and I apologize even for that. There is a priest of Jesus Christ sitting there. There's a priest sitting there, and this is happening. What should a priest do in a situation like that? Ask yourself. I mean, first of all, I'm sure that there were no regular parishioners there, but if you were there, what would you do? What would you do if you were there? The priest is sitting there, and Cardinal Dolan tried to brush this off and said, well, it wasn't technically a mass. Someone writes in the comments here, it's amazing how 
Bishops and priests can keep pulling the I don't know card. They would be fired even for McDonald's at this point. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a priest of Jesus Christ sitting there, and there is blasphemy and profanity being said from the pulpit. What would you do if you were there? What should a priest do if he was there? Do you agree? Let me know in the comments if you agree that this place should be reconsecrated. Elizabeth Innes, Innes in the comments says, how can that priest just sit there? When do we admit that the hostile takeover is now complete? Well, I did a show yesterday. You can check that out on my YouTube channel. I'll show you what it is. Um, let me just bring this up here. And it's called, it's official. Sorry, comments in the way. It's official, the Pope and the bishops have lost their minds. And I go over in this how it's official. The Pope and the bishops have lost their minds. Cardinal Dolan is one of the most powerful cardinals in the world. Okay? He's the cardinal of one of the largest Catholic dioceses in the world. He has a lot of sway. For a long time, he was over at EWTN. He's obviously very well known by politicians and so forth in the most powerful country in the world, New York City. And in the most iconic, arguably the most iconic cathedral, hearkening back to the Irish Catholic history of the great city of New York. And it is a great city historically. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful place for all that it is. I've never been there, but, you know, people who live there really think it's a great place. And it, this was scheduled. Uh, this was on the schedule. There was a priest scheduled to do this. This was part of the upcoming events. It would have been announced. It made waves within New York, and New York is huge, so local news can have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people knowing what's going on. And it took place. And it was originally scheduled to be a mass. You're not supposed to do funeral masses uh, for those who are a scandal to the church. Now, historically, for example, if somebody were to commit suicide or something or die in a very scandalous way, masses, of course, can be offered because we don't know the state of the soul and we, we pray for the souls of those who have departed. And that's just what we do as Catholics. But you never offer funeral masses because what is a funeral mass? A funeral mass is an acknowledgement by the church is an acknowledgement by the church that what is happening is sanctioned by the church. Sarmad says in the comments, St. Patrick, pray for Cardinal Dolan to repent and resign. Imagine, I would, imagine for example, if St. John the Baptist saw this. I mean, the Pharisees were pretty bad. You know, they were, obviously, they are pretty bad. But they were not insane enough to do this. You know, uh, Father Rion at our men's conference that took place on the weekend. Thank you for all those who came. He was talking about the state of how things were and the paganism in Canada when the Canadian martyrs got here. And it was horrible stuff. I mean, stuff I don't even want to repeat because it was really, really bad. And he said, with all that, though, none of them would tell you that a boy can be a girl, meaning the neo-paganism that we're suffering through right now is even more crazy. And I don't think we need a better example 
of this than what we just saw. Elvis. See, Elvis is still alive, my friends. Elvis says in the comments, the people in the pews were cheering. They knew that they were doing something wrong. And this points to something very important. Do you remember during COVID? Some of you may remember COVID. I like to call it communism. Do you remember during that? And the news was always willing and ready to point out what Pope Francis and the bishops were saying about the church closures and about the vaccines. Why? Because the father of this world is the devil. This is what the scripture, he's the prince of this world. This is why the king of this world must be Christ. It is Christ. He is Christ. But we have to recognize this in our governments and in our institutions and families. The social reign of Christ the king. Everyone should read or listen to Archbishop Lefebvre's book, They've Uncrowned Him, available from Angelus Press and available online for free through the SSPX podcast setup, whether it's audio or YouTube or whatever. Check it out. It's free. It's an amazing audiobook. I've listened to it, I don't know, three times. I've read it a couple times. It's a great book. So the prince of this world is the devil. And therefore, he's very smart. He's evil, but he's very smart. He understands that people intrinsically understand that legitimacy from the church translates into a type of moral legitimacy for the world. So if the Catholic Church says a vaccination is an act of love, even if it's unofficial, it's not a doctrine of the church, so to speak, but if the Pope says it, then this must be reported on because everyone knows, even the demons, especially the demons, the detractors, those who hate the church, they need the church to okay and give the stamp of approval to what they're doing. Because they know that if that's the case, then they have the moral stamp of approval from the highest office on earth, the papacy. I mean, presidents are okay with this stuff. Prime ministers are okay with this stuff. And that matters. But even a man like Justin Trudeau, who couldn't give a hoot about the Catholic faith, and he's an apostate who hates the church because he's a demon himself, even a man like that, he'll make sure that on the Canadian government website, when they had the vaccine restrictions for travel, that they had the statements from the Vatican about how you should get vaccinated. Why? Because they need the legitimacy of Christ the King through the atheists and lunatics who hold the offices of the church. Michael Oakdale points out, somehow these Pope's planners see this and, the, and think that Francis is right on point when he says that TLM is rotting the church. If you're just joining us now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. We showed a video at the beginning, maybe you want to check it out. There was a chicken dance going on during Holy Communion at a mass in Germany with a clown leading it. It was literally a clown mass with the chicken dance. And we showed footage, very, very sacrilegious. I'm sorry for those of you who saw it and, and, and didn't want to hear those things. We just wanted to show what was happening in a Catholic church in, in, in New York. A mass that was scheduled, a funeral service for an activist who was an atheist who hates the church uh, with tons of activists present of the rainbow, rainbow persuasion cheering on the most blasphemous things you can imagine about the Saint Cecilia and the Virgin Mother. And uh, scroll back if you want to see that. So I thought right now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I would do some uh, Q&A. It's not very often that I get to go live, so I'd like to do some of that right now. Usually my kids are here and I don't have the house to myself, but today, as I said, the stars have aligned and I'm able to do so. So here's the first question. 
what's a good start to reading Lefebvre? Well, if you've never read anything from Archbishop Lefebvre, the first thing I would start with is Open Letter to Confused Catholics. It's a very popular read. Uh, it's a popular writing, meaning it's written so that the average person can understand. He was writing this, I think it was published, I think in eight, 1986, if I'm not mistaken. And he basically just goes through, you're a confused Catholic. What is happening in the church? How do we make sense of this? Why did this happen? And it's written in a way that's very digestible. And it kind of, when you read it, it illuminates all the things where you say to yourself, that's exactly what I was thinking. Now I have an answer for that. Thank you. It's written for the popular reader. It's, it, there's definitely some very good theology in it, but it's not like an academic work and it's not meant to be. It's an open letter to the flock. It was a bishop being a pastor. And this is what separates Archbishop Lefebvre from the bishops in the church over the last 50 or 60 years, especially very rarely in the church do we find bishops who themselves are actual pastors of souls. They act more like they act more like administrators, CEOs who have nothing to do with the employees, so to speak. Archbishop Lefebvre was a pastor at heart, a missionary at heart, so he wanted to write something that people can understand. After that, um, after that, I would suggest checking out They've Uncrowned Him by Archbishop Lefebvre. Both Open Letter and They've Uncrowned Him are available as audiobooks on YouTube and various podcast platforms through the SSPX District of the United States, the Angeles Press. They're wonderful recordings if you like audiobooks. Um, and then I would recommend as well, there's a book called Archbishop Lefebvre and the Vatican, which basically goes through everything surrounding the consecrations, and it shows you just what was going on, the true story, what was going on in Rome, and the lying and the slandering, the double dealing, and so on and so forth. Then if you get through that, I would read his biography. It's about 700 pages. It's very easy to read. It's a very good uh, writing by Bishop Tissier of the SSPX. Um, then once you get through that, he does have a book that is for your spiritual formation called My Spiritual Journey. It's very good as well. Um, after you've gotten through that, um, he has a little short book, which is called the long story, the little story of my long life. It was basically the, the transcription of some conferences that he gave some traditional sisters just before he died. And it's a very moving work. Um, and then after that, maybe if you want to check out my book, SSPX, The Defense, where I have a lot of what happened in the Archbishop's life and in the Society of St. Pius X as well. Okay. Uh, as I said, I can do some Q&A here while everyone's watching. If you'd like, I don't usually get the chance to go live. If you're just joining us now, we started this episode looking at a chicken dance mass in Germany, and we looked at some footage from the um, sacrilegious affair that took place in uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Here's a good statement from Sarmat. He says, you know what's funny? In the past, if you complained about the hierarchy, some would say, do you think you know or can do better than the Pope and the bishops? I confidently say, yes, I can. This is an important point. And I'm going to go point back to this book here, Bound by Truth by Dr. Kwasniewski. It's a great book. And, you know, I had a conversation with Brian Holdsworth. It was a great conversation. This isn't a criticism. Um, Brian Holdsworth is a very good man. He's a very, very pious man. And, you know, it wasn't a debate. We were talking about the SSPX. He was taking the sort of contra side and I was taking the pro side. But it was a very cordial conversation. Um, I recommend you check that out. We recorded it almost a year ago, might've been in March or something. And I think it was called, um, should I join the SSPX or something like that? It did very well. I think it's got about 50,000 views at this point. It was a great conversation. And the one objection he kept giving to me 
and again, in a very friendly way, it wasn't a nonsense, you know, gotcha thing. He was a very, very wonderful person to interview and I really respect him. But he kept saying to me, okay, I understand all these things, but where do we, basically, where do we get off um, judging the Pope? And my response to that was, I'm not judging the Pope. All the Popes before the last three or four Popes are judging the Pope. If I take something from Pius XII, Pius XI, Pius X, Leo XIII, the various Gregories, Pius IX, if I take something and I say, okay, this is what was teaching of the church and was established and was accepted by all for 20 centuries. Here's what they've been saying since the council. And I see a discrepancy between them. I must believe that Catholic doctrine can't change. And therefore, either I have to interpret the new thing through the old thing, which is possible in some cases, or I have to say the new thing doesn't match the old thing, therefore the new thing must be wrong. And Dr. K in this book, as I've mentioned, Bound by Truth, rec uh, check it out from uh, Angelico Press. He points out that this is like, and I'm not saying, I'm not accusing Brian Holzer of this by any means. I'm saying, but, but this sort of rhetoric where, well how, well, how do you know, you think you know better than the Pope? It's not a matter of knowing better than the Pope. It's a matter of knowing your Catholic faith. And there is no teaching of the church that says a layperson can't understand their Catholic faith with certainty. This is absurd. If we read the Catechism of Trent, the Baltimore Catechism, Catechism of Pius X, the writings of the saints, fathers, doctors, blah, 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 you know, all the Orthodox stuff, the encyclicals of the Pope and the Popes were saying, if we read that stuff, we can understand it because we are made in the image and likeness of God. If we attend the sacraments, we have the aid of sanctifying grace. We have the counsels of the Holy Ghost. We can understand the faith, and we can be certain that the faith is understandable. The modernists believe that religious truth can never fully be understood. They believe that religious truth is something that bubbles up in religious sentiment and is understood with the subconscious, etc., etc., etc. It sounds like modern psychology because it basically is. And therefore, they believe that the doctrines of the church are essentially formulations of things that must change because there's this ineffable reality about Catholic truth that can only be approximated and over time based on our understanding, which changes with the, evolu the evolution of doctrine in the hearts of believers. And by the way, the idea that tradition changes in the hearts of believers is actually in De Verbum of the Second Vatican Council. But they basically believe that because of that, um, we can never know with certainty what is the truth of the faith. It's an agnosticism. It's based on an immanentism. I write, I'm writing about this in my book for Sophia about uh, Pascendi by St. Pope Pius X. But this is the opposite of what the church teaches. This is condemned by Pius X, infallibly. The, the truth is an external thing. The reality of existence, the natural law, the revealed teachings of the church, the infallible teachings of the church, these are external things that we know with certainty. And the way that we know truth, this is basic Aristotle, realism, ancient philosophy, scholastic metaphysics, and so forth, Thomas Aquinas, pick your big name. We look at something and we see that thing. We conceptualize that thing. We conform ourselves to the truth of that thing. And then we know that thing. St. Augustine talks about this at length 
and how the intellect and the memory works in Augustine's Confessions, which is a wonderful book I would recommend. I did narrate um, Anthony Eslin's translation for Tan. You can check that out if you're into audiobooks. So we believe, like, for example, I have a pencil here. This pencil has certain characteristics. It's yellow. It's hard. It has a nature to it. And I say, this is a pencil. The modernist believes that we can't actually say what this thing is with, with full certainty. And we can say this thing appears to be what we consider to be a pencil. That's the heresy of nominalism. But really, we can't know what it is. Catholicism, realist philosophy, Aristotle, Aquinas, and so forth. No, no, no. This thing is a pencil. With the faith, we have language, which is precise. And it says to us, you know, if you don't believe X, Y, and Z, let him be anathema. So we look at that and we say, this is what the truth of the faith is. When the truth of the faith tells us the real presence of Jesus Christ is found in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's an objective reality that is true in and of itself, and we conform our minds to it. And all we can do over time is we can develop the formulations and the doctrines in a way that better and more precisely transmits the faith to us, but not in a faith that makes it less clear. That's evil. This is why the Second Vatican Council contains very grave evils in it, because there's a, ambiguity is an evil. Christ says in, I think, in Apocalypse, I would like that you would be, I'm paraphrasing, but I would, I would, I, I would, I will that you would be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I vomit you out of my mouth. Ambiguity is of the devil. Be hot or be cold. Yes means yes, no means no. So when we say, for example, that we are looking at something from a cardinal or a bishop or a pope, and we say that's not Catholic, we're not judging them. The Catholic faith is judging them. And we have an intellect and a reason, and therefore we can look at those things and understand that what they're proposing to us or doing does not correspond with the Catholic faith. And we are just conforming our minds to the external reality of the revealed truths of the faith. And therefore we stay sane while everybody else goes insane because the definition of insanity is not doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That's an aspect of somebody who is insane. But the definition of insanity is having a break from reality. Good question. Or good comments, Armad. <clears throat> Once again, I've got some time for some Q&A. If you'd like to ask a question, just put it in the comments. Shamunian. <laughs> Sam is here. God bless you, Sam. Um, let me just go back here. I want to make sure I don't miss any. Let me see here. If you've got a question, make sure you put a question mark so I don't have to read them all. One quick second here. Well, this is a good comment, actually. So a traditional Thomist, shout out traditional Thomist. He has a comment here. 
He says, I don't believe that this conciliar church is the Catholic church. I'm not a Sede, but I believe that Lefebvre was right. This is a new religion that all Catholics must separate from. And this is the kind of comment that makes people very nervous. But let's just break this down for a second. We have to look to church history. There was a time, and again, it's in this book, not my book. This isn't a plug for me. Dr. K, I'm having him on my show soon. We're going to do a two-hour conversation, release it over a series of episodes. Bound by Truth. It's The subtitle is Authority, Obedience, Tradition, and the Common Good. Check it out from Angelical Press. And he talks about how there was a time, there was a time during the Aryan crisis where there was this state of ambiguity and crisis. So there were teachings, but no one was following them. There was a time before the authoritative condemnations and so on and so forth. And at a certain point, Orthodox Catholics, meaning real believing faithful Catholics who believe the, the Orthodox Catholic faith, would set themselves up as bishops in dioceses where there was already an official bishop who himself was an Arian. There was no canonical process for this. It was just simply a state of emergency. Now, I always say, um, Archbishop Lefebvre didn't even go that far, but he had every right to if you look at church history, uh, because we see that in a time of grave confusion and crisis within the church, we understand that all the laws of the church and all the dictates and things like that of the church that are from the institutional side, they are meant like all laws and dictates of all governments and all authorities to serve the good of the church. And if they stop serving the good of the church, then they stop doing what they're supposed to do. If they stop doing what they're supposed to do, then we only must obey those things um, insofar as those laws and dictates demonstrate fidelity to their office. We all understand this implicitly. If, for example, when you live in a communist society, you can say that this government is illegitimate. It's illegitimate. It lacks legitimacy, which is another word of saying it's illicit. Because licitness, laseity, legitimacy, they're synonyms. It means that you have a permission based on whatever authority grants you the power to do X, Y, and Z. So for example, there are people, very smart traditionalists, even some of them in full communion, so to speak, who will argue that the Novus Ordo Mise is actually illicit because there's no permission by divine law to do what was done, so to speak. I'm not going to get into that argument here, but it's an example. So when we say there's a conciliar church, the conciliar church was not Archbishop Lefebvre's expression. It was an expression used by the adherents of the council in the Vatican who told Lefebvre to have his priests and himself pledge obeisance to the quote-unquote conciliar church. And Archbishop Lefebvre said, I don't belong to the conciliar church. I belong to the Catholic church. And we see this theme after the council. We have a new Pentecost. <clears throat> Excuse me. John Paul II talks about a new Pentecost. Well, okay, you can understand that metaphorically, but if it's understood literally, then that's blasphemy. There can be no new Pentecost. That's like saying there's a new resurrection or a new crucifixion. It's not possible. John Paul II talked about a new advent. There can be a no new advent. There's the second coming, but it's not a new advent. So there's plenty of reason to agree with what traditional Thomist is saying here, that there's something. And we don't go so far as to say, you know, I have authority to make juridical statements about this 
whatever that every Catholic must adhere to. But we say, I can look at the faith and I can say what's happening now isn't Catholicism. And we can look back to times like the Arian crisis, where there could be literally two bishops in a diocese. One was quote unquote legitimate by the letter of the law, but one was legitimate in the eyes of God. Aaron Engels asks, started listening to open letter to confuse Catholics, makes me really sad, but I'm also very glad that I recently found tradition. Will the SSBX be our only option once they close Latin mass parishes? Well, it's not certain that they'll close all Latin mass parishes. Um, I think they'll close most of them. I do think the fraternity and the institute, if they're not shut down, I think they'll be kicked out of a lot of places. There are plenty of priests at this point. You know, we're in a different era. And again, to go back to this book by Dr. K, Bound by Truth, he does give an appeal to priests, basically saying, you have the moral right to continue saying the traditional mass, even if you have to do so in a way that is independent, and you're not a schismatic for doing so. And he's appealing to the courage of priests to be able to do that. I think, I think this time around, as they continue to close things, I think there will be a lot who will continue to say it. I think we're in a different, a different era where people kind of understand things um, in a different way. I think a lot of priests will continue to say the traditional liturgies. <clears throat> okay, some more questions here. Lots of comments, which is great, but it's hard for me to get through. Here's one. Kennedy, what do you think is Francis's biggest outrage for me, the church clothers, uh, church closers plus pushing the magic potion? Okay, so not the thing that outrages him the most. Um, well, you know, Pope Francis is really just the incarnation of the spirit of modernism, and we saw various iterations of this with every pope since the council. Um, one of the SSPX bishops, he said, you know, Pope Paul VI was the tormented modernist. And you can see this in Paul VI. There's like two Paul VI. There's one that puts out things that are just clearly traditional. And there's one who puts out things that are clearly liberal. John Paul II was the messianic modernist. So he was going to take that sort of ambiguity and spirit of the modern philosophy and so forth. And he was going to be the proof positive that this new springtime could evangelize the world. He went around the world, you know, going to conferences and visiting countries and things like that. And there was a lot of excitement but there was very there were very few conversions and people continued to leave the catholic church in droves then there was benedict the 16th who was the modernist theologian the theologian meaning if you and i you know a lot of people respect benedict and i and i respect him in many ways there's kind of again kind of like two benedicts but benedict really was in his younger years clearly a modernist um he was questioning the bodily resurrection of jesus christ uh cardinal Mueller was the same way he did a eulogy at a Protestant bishop's funeral and said that the bishop was justified by faith. That's heresy. Uh, there's a catechetical manual used in Germany um, that was written by Cardinal Miller that's used in seminaries. You can find this at Ruate Celli, by the way. This isn't just me shooting off the cuff. You can actually find these things. I've read them. And uh, he basically said that the Virgin Mary's um, childbirth, the birth of the Virgin, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary was not she, did, she wasn't intact after, so it wasn't miraculous the way that we always understood it to be, which is heresy. Um, so in Benedict and these German theologians like him, they're very conservative. So they come to conclusions that are very acceptable to, by traditional Catholics. But if you read, for example, the letter uh, that accompanied Samorum Pontificum, and you read Samorum Pontificum itself, which gave permission for the traditional Mass, which is not required, there's no permission required to say the Mass of 
all of the saints of the past, by the way, beyond obviously the regular permissions for a priest who's under suspensions and things like that in the normal sense. I just mean in general. And he said, you know, good stuff. It's, it's like in that you see there's two Benedicts. There's the traditional Benedict and there's the modernist Benedict. And he was able to synthesize those things. And his, one of his favorite philosophers, admittedly so, was Hegel, who was very much the father of modernist philosophy in many ways with Kant and Descartes and Hume. So anyway, there's lots there. Um, and then Pope Francis is the incarnation of modernism. So his biggest outrage, you know, Pope Francis, in many ways, if you actually look at the, you know, I would argue that the popes before Pope Francis did greater damage to the church than Pope Francis. And here's why. This doesn't make me very popular, but it is what it is. Here's why. Because it's very easy to reject Pope Francis's insanity because it's obviously and clearly insane. You have to be a sycophant or a, a cult member at this point to do apologetics for the insanity coming out of the Vatican. But with the popes before him, they were much more intelligent, they were much more articulate, and they had a much greater... They, those popes were all trained traditionally and had found modernism in their sort of formative years in the seminary as it was becoming a thing in the sort of 40s and 50s before the council. Remember, they were ordained before the traditional mass was abrogated. They said the traditional mass for, I mean, John Paul II probably said it for 20 or 30 years before it was changed. And so they were able to offer a very palatable neo-modernist persuasion in their works, which, you know, the biggest problem in my opinion right now in Catholic apologetics and scholarship is that there's this false idea that everything was okay theologically, you know, John Paul II is John Paul the Great, that's amazing, you know, look at his stuff, fetus at ratio, whatever, love and responsibility. There's many good things in those documents, but there are many Trojan horses, which people were not able to see because they were under this spell that we had this crazy modernist outrage, Pius XII, Pius X squashed it, Second Vatican Council was this great council, and we don't have to worry anymore because we got these great popes who write these really long encyclicals and are really good at philosophy. I actually think they did more damage to the church than, than, than Francis. I think Francis has been a blessing in many ways because it's encouraged a lot of people to get out of their stupor. But there is a big roadblock there, and I think we're going to see as things progress, a lot of people are starting to realize they're willing to take the wool, wool you know, remove the wool from their eyes, you know, peel back the, the, the curtain and say to themselves that there were major problems with Benedict and John Paul II. But I, a lot of people I don't think are willing to do that and won't do that. And I think that's going to cause a lot of uh, internal trauma between Catholics who are otherwise of goodwill. Okay, let me see some more uh, comments here and questions. Uh, here's one. What will follow after Fiducia Supplicans? What's next? I don't know if there'll be a document. I mean, here's the thing. The, the Holy Ghost does protect the church. You know, one of the ways the Holy Ghost protects the church is that the Vatican, Second Vatican Council doesn't have the note of infallibility. <laughs> it's kind of a, a negative protection, meaning it's a protection in absence, but nonetheless, it's a protection nonetheless. You know, if the Va Second Vatican Council had anathemas and things like that that were modernist anathemas, uh, then we would have to say the Sedevacantists were right. We'd have to say the gates of hell prevailed or something like that. It would be a, it would be a disaster. But it didn't happen, thank God. So, you know, even with the promulgation of the new, the new Mass, the new Mass was never really promulgated in a way that Masses were promulgated. There was a new Missal that was published 
And under this false obedience, priests were told to say it or you'd be kicked out in the cold. But even there, we do see something like a protection because uh, as Dr. K, again, in this book, I recommend everyone get it. He didn't ask me to do this, by the way, I just think it's such a great book. He shows how there is real scholarship from priests who are on the ground today, from scholars who are on the ground today who can say the new mass actually has no legal legitimacy. Um, which in a way is a protection. So what will follow Fiducia Supplicans? I don't know. Who knows? I just think that what's going to happen is rather than try to explain, rather than officially suppress the traditional mass in a way that is clear and unambiguous, I think instead we're just going to see continual crushing. You know, one of the problems or one of the downfalls of these modernists, and the modernists are all getting very old. They'll, they'll be dead in 10, 15 years, which is a good thing. Pray for their souls because they'll all go to hell if they're not careful. One of the things that's um, kind of comforting is that these men are so imbibed with this Hegelian dialectic where they cannot let their yes mean yes and their no mean no, that they have a real problem saying anything that's clear. They, don't, they have a real problem actually saying anything that is clearly yes or clearly no. And because of that, it's impossible for them to protect the church from errors because they're inept and defeat and effeminate and they're heretics. But it's also almost impossible for them to actually destroy anything permanently. So it's kind of like, you know, the Achilles heel. Like it's, it's that one thing they have. Their ambiguity is their weapon, but at the same time, their ambiguity makes it, at some future date when there's a holy pope, it makes it possible for him to basically just throw a bunch of this stuff in the trash heap and say, none of this was ever binding on Catholics for reasons X, Y, and Z, and none of this will ever be binding on Catholics for X, Y, and Z, anathema to all this nonsense. So I don't know what's exactly going to come, but I think we'll just see kind of the run-of-the-mill totalitarian overreach. Um, and I don't know if documents are proving themselves to be efficient because um, because they're rejected. Okay, another question here. Here's one from... And by the way, there's lots of comments. So if I miss a question, just post it again near the bottom, like copy and paste. Kennedy, can you speculate what Francis's call for liturgical reform might mean or entail? I didn't watch Anthony Stein's video today. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going on YouTube for Lent. I'm just kind of doing this professionally, but I'm not actually watching it. So Sam Shamoon, if you're out there, you got to get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. It's pretty easy. Um, somebody who, you know, who, work, who, who helps you with your stuff, I'm sure, unless it is, maybe I'll check it out. But if it's not, get it on Spotify or iTunes. They can just download the recording and put it up as an MP4. It's pretty simple. Or an MP3. Um, so I haven't watched it, but the other day, Cardinal Supic, the disgrace of Croatian Americans, um, Cardinal Supic, he uh, said there's no reform in the church without liturgical reform, something like that. He admitted it. You know, it's kind of like Walter Casper, the late great John Venari. He used to say he loved Cardinal Casper because Cardinal Casper was just a modernist and just said it like it was and didn't try to hide it. It's like he literally just wants to change church and change doctrine. He doesn't. He doesn't house it in some namby-pamby modernist gobbledygook. He just says, I would like to change the doctrines. I would like to change the doctrines on marriage. I would like to change the church. Cardinal Supic is becoming more and more like that. And every once in a while, you see these guys kind of show their hand. 
um, I don't know what other reform they can do. I mean, I don't, they can't make women deacons in the official sense because it's impossible. Maybe they'll do something like, I can see them doing things like sort of paraliturgical services that are offered in parishes, if that makes sense, where it's basically Anglican nonsense. And maybe you can go to that for Sunday instead. I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I really don't know. I'm just speculating here. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you. Um, let's see here. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, so... Are the chapels owned or lease? Does that put at risk the schools or mass communities of the SSPX? Okay, so are the, SS, the SSPX owned or chapels? Well, uh, it's both. Uh, sometimes they lease a property, um, but my, my understanding is that in most cases, they actually own them. I know we own ours. Our community just bought another one. Um, and that's obviously done through all the channels of the districts, and they go to Menzigen, which where the headquarters are in Switzerland and so forth. Um, in places where they lease them, I think it's just more where there's a, there's a, a missionary activity. So, um, I know, for example, I don't know if the SSPX owns one in New York city proper because it's too expensive to get one. Think about that for a second. You know, St. Patrick's cathedral is being used for uh, blasphemous, sacrilegious, trans funeral nonsense, but they wouldn't let the SSPX say mass there. Think about that. Um, but it's my understanding they own them. In many cases, the SSPX builds churches. Um, of course, St. Mary's, Kansas. So I think most of them are owned. Uh, and, in w and where they lease them, I think it's more of a temporary thing where they set up a community and then eventually they get some property. There was a question before Deeker Will. I want to get to as well. Okay, this is the hardest one. I'm going to give an answer here that is not going to be popular with some people. What do we do if we can't find a Latin mass in our area? Well, first of all, the most important question you have to ask yourself is, is if you can go to a worthy liturgy. I personally can never believe in my heart of hearts that the Novus Ordo is worthy of God. Uh, it's a Talmudic, Freemasonic, Lutheran worship service. doesn't matter if you had smells and bells. Again, read this book, Bound by Truth by Dr. K. It talks about Sunday obligation in a time of liturgical crisis. See the sun coming through right there on my face. Um, spitting me down the middle. Um, so in the case where there's no worthy liturgy available whether that be a traditional mass or an Eastern rite or something like that. And Eastern rite, you got to be careful. You know, the Maronites have been getting pretty crazy. The Chaldeans are getting pretty crazy. It's like the Novus Ordo with some Arabic. Um, and there has to be more to the liturgy than just the mass. You know, all the modernists at the council were saying the traditional mass, but they were modernists. So their theology was bad. So their, I imagine their preaching would have been bad. It has to be more than just the liturgy. Catholics, in times of persecution, they stay home on Sundays and they say the Missal. They pray their rosary. They do acts of spiritual communion. It's not a fun option, but it's an option. Um, it's kind of like we did had to do during COVID. Uh, they travel far distances. You know, you have to believe that if you're going to go out of your way and travel far distances in order to go to the Mass, that you're going to receive the graces of state in order to do so. And then if it's going to be something that you can't foresee changing in a long time, then I would move. Um, you know, people say things, well, it's very hard to move, but I just, I always try to give an example. I'm not, I don't know anything about this person. So I'm not saying you've considered this. This is just a general response to the audience. 
you know, if all that was available for you in your area was a regular Catholic school or a bad or a public school, so a bad Catholic school and a public school, and you couldn't homeschool for some reason, and there are reasons. Not everyone can homeschool. Um, homeschooling is a modern phenomenon in many ways. It's very we homeschool. It's very good. But the ideal is really that you have a good traditional Catholic school, and we should all work to, to, to promote those things. But if you have to homeschool, you have to. And not everyone should be expected to. So one thing I find sometimes in Catholicism, in traditional Catholicism, there's almost this view that it's like there's no salvation outside homeschooling. The church always had good schools. Uh, parents are not expected to be the teachers of their children day in, day out historically. This is a modern phenomenon. It's, it's something we have to do now because the schools are in such a bad array. So if people have trouble homeschooling, don't feel bad about that. It's really hard to homeschool your kids. I work from home so I can help my wife. It'd be very hard for her to do what she does if I wasn't here. Um, she does an amazing job, but that's just the reality. But my point is, is if you had nowhere to send your kids to school, what would you do? You'd move. You'd move. People move all the time. They move to a different county for the charter school, whatever. They leave their country because they can't get a job in their country. They go somewhere else. So eventually, if you don't foresee it changing, you'd move, you know, and this is why we have no intention of moving. I love our house. I never want to leave. I want to die here. I want to, I'm a Canadian patriot through and through as crazy as this place is. This is, this is where I, I was born. This is where I learned to skate. This is where I had my first Holy Communion. This is the place I die for. That's, that's the virtue of patriotism. And I try to inculcate that in my children. But nonetheless, let's just say some parallel universe, we had to move to a different country. I would always go where there was an SSPX chapel because it wouldn't go away. I wouldn't go where there was fraternity. I wouldn't go where there was the institute. Not because I don't think they don't, that's because I don't think they're a good priest. There are very good priests in those orders, of course. But at the, at the stroke of a pen of a bishop in this time of crisis, which will last for at least 40 or 50 years, probably, because you got to think, listen, the Vatican II generation is dying, but there's also very few vocations and the institutions are in a state of disrepair. So let's just say tomorrow Pope Francis dies and we have Pius XIII, we have a holy pope. It's still going to take a long time before there's an actual restoration to the point where we can say that things have been fixed. It's going to take, it's going to take decades. So I would go where you have permanence as best as you can, as best as you can find it. Okay. That's a good question. I'll do a couple more and then I got to get off. Let me see here. Oh, is it a good thing to hear outer space like silence on fiducia supplicants from our local bishops? Yeah, I think it is. That's good. Silence is golden. <laughs> uh, they're just not doing it, which is good. Good for them. That was from Giovanni. Um, let's see here. Make sure you put question marks, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Sam, I'm not answering that question. Um, oh, can you recommend a church to attend in Ontario close to Toronto? Yes, the SSBX is in Toronto. Um, so I'd go there uh, in Etobicoke area. And, um, and Toronto, I mean, the greater Toronto area, you can drive an hour and be in lots of different areas. New Hamburg is only about an hour from Toronto. People drive an hour from Mass all the time. Uh, so plenty of spots. If you're in the Hamilton-ish side of Toronto, then there's St. Catherine's SSPX is there. So yeah, lots of good places. Let me see here. 
if you had to choose anything other than the SSPX, what would it be? I'm assuming that means like if, if there was no SSPX, where would I go? Um, well, if there was no SSPX, there would be no fraternity and there would be no institute and there would be no indult. So there'd be no traditional mass. Uh, but uh, I have an affinity more for the Institute of Christ the King. This is about to make me very popular. Um, but there is some monkey business with the formation of the fraternity. It's just a fact. They say they use the Accord of Archbishop Lefebvre and Cardinal Ratzinger, but they don't. They changed it significantly. Uh, you can find this in some old articles. I'm going to dig some up and maybe do something on my Substack. Um, I'd probably go to the Institute if that in a parallel universe where these existed, but there was no SSPX. But if these existed and there was no SSPX, then the fraternity wouldn't be a breakoff of the. So it's kind of a hard question to answer. Let's see here. Okay, a um, couple more questions. Hmm. What are your thoughts on the ordinariate? So I know people who I greatly respect who go to the ordinariate. I think the ordinariate is objectively better than the Novus Ordo. Uh, nonetheless, in the ordinariate, there are still things like communion on the hand. But then there's also priests from the ordinariate who are super strong. So I don't have a personal opinion of an experience, but I would never choose it over the traditional mass. Here's another one. Who, what is your favorite pope in history? I mean, probably Pius X. Um, just because... And listen, people will criticize various things from Pius X. You know, should he have changed the breviary? Listen, when we're standing before God, I hope that there's a conversation about whether or not we were perfect. You know, like, that's good. You know, well, you know, you only got 99 of 100. I, I'll, I'll take that score. I always make the reference. I say, you know, Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, best NFL coach and quarterback of all time. They threw some interceptions, lost a few games. No one else can hold a candle to them. So I love Pope St. Pius X. Um, I think his writings on modernism, I mean, Pashendi is the key to understand. That's why I'm writing this book for, for Tan or for Sophia on modernism. I'm basically just going through Pashendi by Pius X and teasing out the meaning and giving examples of it because the answer is already there. It's just not accessible to people because it's hard to read. So I'm making it readable, if that makes sense. Uh, Pope St. Pius X, I, I really love him. He also did a lot of, on, on um, music as well. A lot of other things as well. He did a lot. Um, all right, I think. Oh, okay, I'll do this as the last one. Can you explain genetic entropy? Sort of. I just recorded a podcast with a PhD from Oxford in evolutionary theory. I'm, I'm going to be posting a six-part, I think it's six-part series on the traditional doctrine of creation and evolution with uh, folks from the Colby Center and some independent folks. And uh, I'll start posting that within the next couple of weeks, probably one a week for about two months or so. Uh, people uh, who subscribe to my Substack or are YouTube members, they'll have access to it first for the first couple of days. So if you want to have access to those things first, then sign up to the Substack or to the YouTube membership. Genetic entropy essentially is that we basically are getting worse over time. So basically as mutations enter into the gene pool, we have these certain 
permutations and, and degenerations. So, so it shows that evolution itself is not very likely or if not impossible from a genetic perspective. Um, because when we have mutations, things don't actually get better. They actually end up getting worse. Um, so this makes a lot of sense, though. When you look back on history and you talk and you look at these men who could fast for longer times or eat, you know, eat in different ways or whatever, survive harsher conditions, they actually had a better genetic structure than we did in many ways. So it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so that's the last question. Um, what about the TLM at St. Anne's in Hamilton? I've never been to the TLM in Hamilton. I know people who have. They say it's great. I always just say this. It's not just about the liturgy. It's about the faith. All of the priests at the Second Vatican Council, the priests and bishops who were modernists, were saying the TLM. The TLM is definitely a bulwark against the inculcation of modernism and Protestant spirit into the faithful in the liturgical sense. But it doesn't mean that the priests themselves may not be forming themselves in an extracurricular capacity to be modernists and to transmit that to their faithful. So I would always say with Daoists and TLM, you just have to be careful because the priests went to Novus Ordo Seminary. The priests were reading De Lubac and Balthazar and all these wackos, and they are inculcated with that theology, whether you like it or not. So it might come out in the homilies. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless you all.